Chapter Seven of the Seven Secrets by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Seven: The Man's Short and His Story. A light footstep sounded behind me, and scarcely had I time to thrust the little object hastily back into my pocket when my beloved entered in search of me. "What do the police think, Ralph?" she asked eagerly. "'Have they any clue? Do tell me.' "'They have no clue,' I answered, in a voice which I feared sounded hard and somewhat abrupt. Then I turned from her, as though fully occupied with the investigations at which I was assisting, and went past her, leaving her standing alone. The police were busy examining the doors and windows of the back premises, kitchens, scullery, and pantry, but could find no evidence of any lock or fastening having been tampered with. The house, I must explain, was a large detached red-brick one, standing at a lawn that was quite spacious for a suburban house, and around it ran an asphalt path which diverged from the right-hand corner of the building and ran in two parts to the road, one a semicircular drive which came up to the portico from the road, and the other a tradesman's path that ran to the opposite extremity of the property. From the back kitchen a door led out upon this asphalt tradesman's path, and as I rejoined the searchers some discussion was in progress as to whether the door in question had been secured. The detective sergeant had found it unbolted and unlocked, but the cook most positively asserted that she had both locked and bolted it at half-past ten when the under-housemaid had come in from her evening out. None of the servants, however, recollected having undone the door either before the alarm or after. Perhaps Short had done so, but he was absent in search of the dead man's widow. The police certainly spared no pains in their search. They turned the whole place upside down. One man, on his hands and knees, and carrying a candle, carefully examined the blue stair carpet to see if he could find the marks of unusual feet. It was wet outside, and if an intruder had been there there would probably remain marks of muddy feet. He found many, but they were those of the constable and detectives. Hence the point was beyond solution. The drawing-room, the dining-room, the morning-room, and the big conservatory were all closely inspected, but without any satisfactory result. My love followed us everywhere, white-faced and nervous, with the cream chenille shawl still over her shoulders. She had hastily put up her wealth of dark hair, and now wore the shawl wrapped lightly about her. That shawl attracted me. I managed to speak with her alone for a moment, asking her quite an unimportant question, but nevertheless with a distinct object. As we stood there I placed my hand upon her shoulder and upon the shawl. It was for that very reason in order to feel the texture of the silk that I returned to her. The contact of my hand with the silk was convincing. I turned from her once again and rejoined the shrewd men whose object it was to fasten the guilt upon the assassin. Presently we heard the welcome sound of cab wheels outside, and a few minutes later young Mrs. Courtney, wild-eyed and breathless, rushed into the hall and dashed headlong up the stairs. I, however, barred her passage. "'Let me pass,' she cried wildly. "'Short has told me he is worse and has asked for me. Let me pass.' "'No, Mary, not so quickly. Let me tell you something. 
I answered gravely, placing my hand firmly upon her arm. The police were again re-examining the back premises below, and only Ethelwyn was present at the top of the stairs, where I arrested her progress to the dead man's room. "'But is there danger?' she demanded anxiously. "'Tell me!' "'The crisis is over,' I responded ambiguously. "'But is not your absence to-night rather unusual?' "'It was entirely my own fault,' she admitted. "'I shall never forgive myself for this neglect. After the theatre we had supper at the Savoy, and I lost my last train. Dolly Henniger, of course, asked me to stay, and I could not refuse.' Then, glancing from my face to that of her sister, she asked, "'Why do you both look so strange?' "'Tell me,' she shrieked, "'tell me the worst. Is he—is he dead?' I nodded in the affirmative. For a second she stood dumb, then gave vent to a long wail, and would have fallen senseless if I had not caught her in my arms and laid her back upon the long settee placed in an alcove on the landing. She, like all the others, had dressed hurriedly. Her hair was disheveled beneath her hat but her disordered dress was concealed by her long ulster heavily lined with silver fox, a magnificent garment which her doting husband had purchased through a friend at Moscow and presented to her as a birthday gift. From her manner it was only too plain that she was filled with remorse. I really pitied her, for she was a light-hearted, flighty little woman who loved gaiety, and without an evil thought had no doubt allowed her friends to draw her into that round of amusement. They sympathized with her, as every woman who marries an old man is sympathized with, and they gave her what pleasures they could. Alas, that such a clanship between women so often proves fatal to domestic happiness. Judged from a logical point of view, it was merely natural that young Mrs. Courtney should, after a year or two with an invalid husband, aged and eccentric, beat her wings against the bars. She was a pretty woman almost as pretty as her sister, but two years older, with fair hair, blue eyes, and a pink-and-white, almost doll-like complexion. Indeed, I knew quite well that she had long had a host of admirers, and that just prior to her marriage with Courtenay it had been rumored that she was to marry the heir to an earldom, a rather rakish young cavalry officer up at York. To restore her to consciousness was not a difficult matter, but after she had requested me to tell her the whole of the ghastly truth she sat speechless, as though turned to stone. Her manner was unaccountable. She spoke at last, and to me it seemed as though the fainting fit had caused her an utter loss of memory. She uttered words at random, allowing her tongue to ramble on in strange disjointed sentences of which I could make nothing. "'My head! Oh, my head!' She kept on exclaiming, passing her hand across her brow as though to clear her brain. "'Does it pain you?' I inquired. "'It seems as though a band of iron were round it. I can't think. I—I I can't remember.' And she glanced about her helplessly, her eyes with a wild, strange look in them, her face so haggard and drawn that it gave her a look of premature age. "'Oh, Mary, dear,' cried Ethelwyn, taking both her cold hands. "'Why, what's the matter?' calm yourself dear then turning to me she asked can nothing be done ralph see she's not herself the shock has unbalanced her brain ralph ethelwyn gasped the unfortunate woman looking at us with an expression of sudden wonder what has happened did i understand you all right poor henry is dead unfortunately that is the truth i was compelled to reply 
It is a sad affair, Mary, and you have all our sympathy. But recollect he was an invalid, and for a long time his life has been despaired of. I dared not yet tell her the terrible truth that he had been the victim of foul play. It is my fault, she cried. My place was here, at home, but-but why was I not here? she added with a blank look. Where did I go? Don't you remember that you went to London with the Hennikers? I said. Ah, of course, she exclaimed. How very stupid of me to forget. But do you know, I've never experienced such a strange sensation before. My memory is a perfect blank. How did I return here? Short fetched you in a cab. Short? I, I don't recollect seeing him. Somebody knocked at my door and said I was wanted, because my husband had been taken worse, so I dressed and went down. But after that I don't recollect anything. Her mind is a trifle affected by the shock, I whispered to my love. Best take her downstairs into one of the rooms and lock the door. Don't let her see the police. She didn't notice the constable at the door. She'll be better presently. I uttered these words mechanically. But, truth to tell, these extraordinary symptoms alarmed and puzzled me. She had fainted at the hearing of the death of her husband, just as many other wives might have fainted but to me there seemed no reason whatsoever why the swoon should be followed by that curious lapse of memory. The question she had put to me showed her mind to be a blank. I could discern nothing to account for the symptoms, and the only remedy I could suggest was perfect quiet. I intended that, as soon as daylight came, both women should be removed to the house of some friend in the vicinity. The scene of the tragedy was no place for two delicate women. Notwithstanding Mrs. Courtney's determination to enter her husband's room, I managed at last to get them both into the morning-room, and called the nurse and cook to go in and assist in calming her, for her lapse of memory had suddenly been followed by a fit of violence. "'I must see him!' she shrieked. "'I will see him. You can't prevent me. I am his wife. My place is at his side.' My love exchanged looks with me. Her sister's extraordinary manner utterly confounded us. You shall see him later, I promised, endeavouring to calm her. At present remain quiet. No good can possibly be done by this wild conduct. Where is Sir Bernard? she inquired suddenly. Have you telegraphed for him? I must see him. As soon as the office is open, I shall wire. Yes, telegraph at the earliest moment. Tell him of the awful blow that has fallen upon us. Presently, by dint of much persuasion, we managed to quiet her. The nurse removed her hat, helped her out of her fur-lined coat, and she sat huddled up in a big grandfather chair, her handsome evening gown crushed and tumbled, the flowers she had worn in her corsage on the previous night, drooping and withered. For some time she sat motionless, her chin sunk upon her breast, the picture of dejection until, of a sudden, she roused herself, and before we were aware of her intention, she had torn off her marriage ring and cast it across the room, crying wildly, "'It is finished! He is dead! Dead!' And she sank back again among the cushions, as though exhausted by the effort. What was passing through her brain at that moment, I wondered. Why should a repulsion of the marriage bond seize her so suddenly, then cause her to tear off the golden fetter under which she had so long chafed? There was some reason, without a doubt but at present all was an enigma, all save one single point. 
When I returned to the police to urge them not to disturb Mrs. Courtney, I found them assembled in the conservatory discussing an open window by which anyone might easily have entered and left. The mystery of the kitchen door had been cleared up by Short, who admitted that after the discovery he had unlocked and unbolted it in order to go round the outside of the house and see whether anyone was lurking in the garden. When I was told this story I remarked that he had displayed some bravery in acting in such a manner. No man cares to face an assassin unarmed. The man looked across at me with a curious apprehensive glance, and replied, "'I was armed, sir. I took down one of the old Indian daggers from the hall.' "'Where is it now?' inquired the inspector quickly, for at such a moment the admission that he had a knife in his possession was sufficient to arouse a strong suspicion. I hung it up again, sir, before going out to call the doctor, he replied quite calmly. Show me which it was, I said, and he accompanied me out to the hall and pointed to a long thin knife which formed part of a trophy of antique Indian weapons. In an instant I saw that such a knife had undoubtedly inflicted the wound in the dead man's breast. So you armed yourself with this, I remarked, taking down the knife with affected carelessness and examining it. Yes, doctor, it was the first thing that came to hand. It's sharp, for I cut myself once when cleaning it. I tried its edge, and found it was almost as keen as a razor. It was about ten inches long, and not more than half an inch broad, with a hilt of carved ivory, yellow with age, and inlaid with fine lines of silver. Certainly a very dangerous weapon. The sheath was of purple velvet, very worn and faded. I walked back to where the detectives were standing and examined the blade beneath the light. It was bright and had apparently been recently cleaned. It might have been cleaned and oil smeared upon it after the commission of the crime. Yet as far as I could discern with the naked eye there was no evidence that it had recently been used. It was the man's curious apprehensive glance that had first aroused my suspicion, and the admissions that he had opened the back door and that he had been armed both increased my mistrust. The detectives, too, were interested in the weapon, but were soon satisfied that, although a dangerous knife, it bore no stain of blood. So I put it back in its case and replaced it. But I experienced some difficulty in getting the loop of the wire back upon the brass-headed nail from which it was suspended, and it then occurred to me that short, in the excitement of the discovery, and ordered by Ethelwyn to go at once in search of me, would not without some motive remain there striving to return the knife to its place. Such action was unnatural. He would probably have cast it aside and dashed out in search of a cab. Indeed the constable on the beat had seen him rush forth hurriedly, and, urged by Ethelwyn, run in the direction of Kew Bridge. No, somehow I could not rid myself of the suspicion that the man was lying. To my professional eye the weapon with which the wound had been inflicted was the one which he had admitted had been in his possession. The story that he had unlocked the door and gone in search of the assassin struck the inspector, as it did myself, as a distinctly lame tale. I longed for the opening of the telegraph office so that I might summon my friend Jevons to my aid. He reveled in mysteries, and if the present one admitted of solution I felt confident that he would solve it. End of chapter 7. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.